This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. All right. Hello, everybody. My name is Joel Harris, and I get to work alongside the Overland Partners team. Uh, my background is in K-12 education, school leadership, management consulting, and education funding. Um, we I've joined the Overland team to put together uh, uh, some of these events where we are learning as much as we can about the K-12 learning environment what uh, COVID is doing to it, and then what it means for school design and uh, teaching and learning for the future. And so today we have uh, a panel that includes Eric Lombardi, Billy Handmaker, and Ruth Burke, and I'll let everybody uh, provide their own introductions. Uh, the way that these conversations are structured is uh, we have uh, a, a we'll, we'll facilitate a panel discussion uh, around a, a set of topics and questions. Uh, we'll let our panelists uh, go back and forth, um, and then we'll do a brief open for participants to offer questions. Um, you can chat your questions along the way, uh, and we will uh, surface them as the conversation progresses. And um, I am uh, uh, by no means uh, the facilitator that my partner is. Jen Maestas from Miss Education is here, and she's going to be taking lead on the facilitation. I'm just going to kind of be her uh, backup dancer uh, and elevate items that are in the chat. And so... Uh, we will also be recording this pod, this uh, this conversation, and it'll be posted both for uh, the Miseducation podcast as well as uh, on on various channels. So uh, that's a way of saying, you know, uh, make sure that our language is moral, ethical, and appropriate for the classroom. Um, and if not, be sure to apologize profusely. Uh, and um, so that's the <laughs> that's the plan and format um, for today. We're going to go through. Uh, four major questions, and really it's about what is the COVID impact on, on independent schools, on the economics, on the culture, 
And what does that tell us about the future of independent or private schools? This is the second in a series that we've been doing. We started with a focus on uh, K-12 San Antonio public schools, um, and now we're making the shift to talk specifically about independent schools. And so, Jen, I will let you take it from here and start doing my backup dancing, if possible, on Zoom. Uh, So passing the baton. Ready? Go. Thank you, Joel. And guys, if you don't have your own backup dancer, I highly recommend getting one. (laughs) Look at him go. Um, Thanks for inviting me to be part of this second conversation in your series. Uh, I completely geek out on all things education. I will admit that I am not an expert in many things, but I know a lot of things um, and I'm always looking to, to learn more. And tonight's conversation is in a new arena for me. So this is really exciting and it's feeding into all my geekiness because it's me listening in on a conversation that I'm not typically privy to. I have worked for an ISD um, for the last 20 years, an independent school district in the urban core of San Antonio. And I still do a lot of work with the ISDs, although I am now partnering with City Education Partners and the CAS Schools Networks as a school design coach. And what that means is there are um, people who are reimagining what schools look like and who or could look like or should look like, and they are in design phases. And I get to listen to their vision and talk them through what um, they picture for the future. And then I get to use my connecting skills to connect them to people who have more experience than either one of us do. Um, and that is exciting work for me. And I part I got to be a part of Overland through some mutual networks, primarily through my brother, Ben, who's on the call and who is an architect there at Overland. When I started asking him about design thinking, we started really engaging in these conversations. And so um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to learn from our independent schools um, tonight. And, and for any of you who don't know what an independent school is, it's a school who is not uh, who is autonomous. They are not governed by a board of directors. Um, And so this is really exciting and new space for me, and I'm excited to be here. So with that said, I'll let our guests introduce themselves. Um, Who wants to kick us off? I'll go first. Um, Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. I'm Ruth Burke. I am the Associate Head of School at the Episcopal School of Dallas. This is my 24th year here at ESD. And uh, prior to that, I was at the University of Liggett School in Gross Point, Michigan, and the Bulls School in Jacksonville, Florida. So been around for a little while, and I'm pleased to be here and join the conversation. I'll go next. My name is Eric Lombardi. I'm in my sixth year as the head of Fort Worth Country Day, a kindergarten through 12th grade independent school, obviously in Fort Worth with 1,080 kids in my Previous experiences have all been at um, K through 12 independent schools, one in Oakland, California, one in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, one in Houston, Texas, and have landed here after 30 some years in that world. Good evening, my name is Billy Handmaker. I'm in my third year as the head of Keystone School in San Antonio. We are a PK through 12th grade school. Um, I'm in my 25th year as a head of school having headed up schools in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and St. Louis, Missouri, before coming to Keystone. 
Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Um, we also have another partner on the call, Building Solutions. Does anybody want to introduce themselves from? Well, I, I'll give it a run. Uh, I, I got called in last minute to drive my son to practice because uh, my wife is at Ruth School filling in for the volleyball scorekeeper. So <laughs> that's awesome. Raven that's with Building Solutions, and I think Bill Kessler is on the call. That's right. That's right. I think Bill Kessler is on the call uh, with us as well. We uh, we're, we have a 30-year-old a, a firm whose uh, practice is acting as uh, chief advocates and advisors to independent schools. Uh, we have over 150 independent school clients in uh, 38 states, and uh, we're happy to lend whatever uh, support we can any time we get a chance to interact with uh, client schools and, and Overland partners as well. So we're happy to be here. Thanks, Joe. And that brings us to Overland Partners. I guess I, I could say something. I'm Rick Archer. Uh, I am one of the founding principals at Overland. And um, I think this this podcast, this webinar that we're doing is really um, about our commitment to innovative solutions to education in the future. And it grows out of our belief that buildings aren't just buildings, uh, but they are there to help you all accomplish your mission and that when we create a physical trans physical trans transformation of building that really makes a difference it can lead to real human transformations educational transformations and we've had the privilege of working uh both with you billy and with ruth um and and so you know us we know you we have loved the experiences that we've had uh with you all rethinking your campuses and um really looking forward to hearing what you all have to share this evening and Jennifer's modest, but I think she has about 10,000 listeners to her podcast. So um, this will get wide coverage. This is actually just a, a little little piece of the, of the whole equation. So we thank you all for participating. Thanks. Thanks for that little shout out. I, I never imagined that I would be the host of a podcast, but it is a ton of fun and you'll, you'll, you'll get to experience that tonight. Uh, so let's kick it off with just um, this big, broad topic for our school leaders. How are you guys dealing? How are independent schools dealing with like this range of pressure um, in reopening your schools and having a plan in your guidelines in with your public school counterparts? Tell us all about this little the story that you've been living for the past seven months. I can start this time. Um, I would say that all of us would probably agree that we're feeling really fortunate to be in the circumstances that we're in. We're um, able with one campus schools and kind of being superintendents of our, our, our single campus to make a lot of decisions that uh, affect every kid on campus and allow us to um, take advantage of our small sizes, typically our wonderful student teacher ratios. We've just got a lot of advantages in our world. And I, I think probably all of us um, wish that upon everybody who's trying to navigate through these things. But the independent school world in which we're a part of has plenty of challenges um, and also plenty to be grateful for. Um, we are able to be at school. We have had kids here for uh, since August uh, at this point in time, um, have had a couple of uh, quick shutdowns, but have been able to navigate. And really a lot of that has to do with great circumstances that um, we're, we're privileged to be a part of. Yeah, I would echo what Eric says. Um, you know, I 
when thinking back from March until the start of school and being able to be on campus, it's been quite the quite the whirlwind and um, and, and and never ending. I, I I thought we worked a lot before this happened, and <laughs> I didn't know I could actually work more um, um, than I than I did before. So you know, the pressures to me of reopening were really. Uh, wide ranging. Uh, and it was a, a matter of trying to pull all those things together and the resources. One of the, the words that I use a lot over the last six months is just simply being nimble and have an open mind and open heart because what, what worked yesterday might not be the case today because the, it's like a moving target, it seems, uh, this year. And and really trying to keep in mind the, the emotional well-being of our entire community has been at the forefront of that. In, in, and, and we all have different needs and we're all experiencing this in different ways um, and supporting, you know, we, we talked about this the other day, supporting our faculty, um, you know, is a number one because, you know, their jobs were hard before and now that's, you know, 10 times, if, if not more than that, and making sure that we support them and, and give them the tools and resources and the time. The gift of time right now is fleeting because there's, mm-hmm. you know, the schedules are such that they're there aren't those natural breaks. There's not those, those collaboration times and those meeting times and just the ability to recharge uh, your batteries. And so trying to rethink some of that as we, you know, we're into our, I guess, eighth week of school or so as well. So we've, we've been pretty fortunate to be back and we have a small percentage who are learning from home, about 7%. Um, but it's also just enough that every teacher probably has at least one student or more at home. Um, and so being able to, to run a synchronous class is, is, you know, and teaching synchronously is, is really, really challenging and a new experience for a lot of our, our folks. And then also thinking about the needs of students and where they are, and also the, the students who are at home, mm-hmm. because several of them are at home and then really don't want to be at home, but they have to be at home for a variety of reasons. Um, and making sure that we are always connecting and thinking about them and listening to them and and how they're experiencing this situation and, and make sure we're, when we talk about the present tense and being on campus, we need to remember that there's there's a, a group of our kids who are at home and, and some teachers as well. Um, so relying on each other, relying on the schools that we work with, we have a great consortium of schools here in Dallas and Fort Worth that have been really helpful and across the state of Texas and ISAS. And so that's been um, really helpful. You know, none of us are, are are professionals or experts at running a school during a pandemic. Um, but you know, there might be a few of us who are experts after the fact. But right now, we're <laughs> we're, we're learning as we're going, and it's 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 really it, it takes a village, if not more uh, than that. For sure, for sure. Thank you. And I guess I I would agree with both Eric and Ruth in terms of we're in some ways we're very very fortunate to be in the position we're in where we get to make the decisions in terms of whether we open or not. Um, the flip side of that is, um, you know, Barry Schwartz wrote a book many years ago called The Paradox of Choice. Mm. And part of the problem with choice is it also kind of adds a level of responsibility um, that once again, I would never complain about the position we're in, but it complicates the situation because we have so many options and possibilities in front of us. And what complicates that even more is when you feel like you're you're getting conflicting information from different entities, um, and so you're not sure at times which one to to adhere to. Um, yeah. And something like a pandemic has become so politicized mm-hmm. that you're trying to make data based, science based, research based decisions, 
trying to stay out of the political arena, but on the other hand, trying to make sure that you're making the right choice while not being sure which agency um, is the one to listen to. And we've seen that quite a bit here in Texas. And so I think that just makes it all the more difficult. I'm, I'm not complaining anyway, but I think that complicates it. The other element also is, um, and I just wrote about this last week, is um, this is affecting every one of our constituencies in different ways. Right. And as administrators in independent schools, part of our role is holding our communities in care, but realizing that every one of our constituent groups is experiencing a great deal of anxiety and a great deal of stress. And sometimes what's causing one group stress um, is the lever that another group wants. So how do you kind of manage all of these different conflicting groups when they're all in a very, very stressful situation? Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they want things that are kind of marching along simultaneously, but sometimes they want very different things. And once again, trying to kind of avoid the politicization of it. Um, and then last of all, what's really difficult, we've been dealing with this since we started at our school planning for this back in January. Once we kind of started hearing the news out of Wuhan, we thought, okay, this could be the kind of zootropic pandemic that people have been talking about for a long time. So we started planning for it. And I think for all of us, what makes it all the more difficult is um, there's no end in sight. Right. You know, all of our schools are really, really good, I think, at handling crises, public or private. We can do amazing, incredible things when we're faced with adversity. But part of what allows us to get through at times is realizing, okay, we just have to get through until this time. Um, and then we can kind of move on. And obviously what's making this difficult is the fact that it's not time limited. It's going along with several other crises that our society is dealing with, economic, economic climate, political, um, social issues, which also makes mm -hmm. it very difficult. And so I think we're kind of trying to balance all of these things while realizing that we could be in this for a long time and trying to kind of hold our communities as they deal with all the different levels of stress and fatigue just um, compound the difficulties. Yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, I think it's like there's chronic stress and chronic fatigue. And when in the short term, you're met with a stressful situation, you can kind of pivot quickly and then do something that recovers and breaks you out of that stress cycle. But when it's day after day and there, you don't know if what you're pivoting to is going to be the ultimate solution and you're starting over again and again and again. So yeah, I, I completely understand. I don't have a good, I don't, I don't know if I even have good commentary for it, much less a solution, um, except to say like you, it, it's an iteration, an iterative process right now. Um, and people are really feeling it physically and, and financially, honestly. So let's, let's shift just a little bit to the finances. Um, what have been the financial implications of the plans we're making? Have you seen have you retained your students? Have you lost students? What's happened with your enrollment, um, with your building, your utilities, all of the things that, that have to do that are a result of what we're walking through right now? You want to flip the order and I'll go first this time. And so, and, and, you know, Jen, one other thing I would add, um, I was talking with my wife yesterday, who's a, um, a university administrator. And one other thing that I think makes this difficult meant to mention is, um, you know, very often when we're weather oriented crises, we can see the tangible signs of it. You know, if it's a hurricane, we see the damage. If it's a tornado, we see the damage. What's really difficult about this crisis also is at times, um, we obviously see the damage in terms of the number of people who are sick or dying, but at times there's also kind of a sense of normalcy, which makes it all the more stressful realizing kind of what's underneath it. Um, in terms of finances, um, 
I think I, I don't think I know that we're in a very different market than than Fort Worth, Dallas, or Houston. Um, so one of the things we've seen is we've maintained our community and our enrollment is very similar to last year, but we've seen dramatic increases for tuition assistance, um, almost doubling the tuition assistance for this year, because um, our goals were to maintain the community and maintain the program. So like I said, we've almost doubled the amount of tuition assistance and we're still getting requests. We just got about three or four more requests this week from families who just now lost jobs. So as opposed to kind of a spike that goes up and goes down, this feels like it's kind of these waves um, that keep on hitting. And so on the one hand, we saw that in terms of the revenue side. On the other hand, we dramatically increased expenditures in areas like technology and some facilities areas so that we could be fully ready for children to attend either in person or via distance learning. And we're probably about 35 to 40% of our students at home versus maybe 60 to 65% at school. And so we really increased our technology costs and our facility costs so that we could do each and families could feel comfortable with each. So, you know, it's not always the best combination of things of decreasing revenue and increasing expenditures. Sure. And Billy, uh, thanks for for sharing that. I'm going to jump in here right quick, Jen. Um, I wonder if, if as we go back through around the panel on this question, if you all, for the folks who aren't familiar with Keystone or Country Day or ESD, could just kind of give everybody a, a quick, here's how many students we have. And then like you just did, Billy, kind of a, here's how many are in person, here's how many are uh, virtual, what that breakout is. So before uh, the next person jumps in on the financial implications question, Billy, do you mind just giving a quick overview of the student body population at Keystone? Sure, Joel. We're, we're, a, we're a right around 500 students. PK through 12. So it's typically 35 to 45 students um, at each grade level. So, and, and I will also say that, you know, to no surprise, you see kind of um, a dramatic difference in terms of the number of children who are on campus um, at the lower levels versus the children who are on campus at the upper levels. Um, you know, the, the kind of the percentages decrease the further up you go in age to the point where we have about two thirds of our seniors who are at home because they decided they wanted to just be at home, do all their work and get all their college apps done before they come back versus I think we have like, you know, fewer than 10 in our whole preschool who are staying at home. Wow. And how are your seniors feeling about that? Are they doing okay? They, um, <laughs> I think they're, they're loving it. Um, well, that's good. We want them back. We we said at the very beginning, if you wanted to keep your children home for safety reasons, you could. I don't know if all of them are staying home for safety reasons. <laughs> um, we're hoping that after the November 1 deadline, we may get some more on campus. Um, but And it's also kind of that class is a little different than other classes because our junior class only has three students staying at home. So they're 108 degrees different. Um, but we did not want to get into the position of questioning families as to why they were yeah. keeping the child home. Their, their children home. But for the most part, you see, you know, the higher percentage of students on campus, the younger you go. I, I would, I would agree. At ESD, we have about 1150 students from a three-year-old program through grade 12. Um, and overall, about 7% of our students are home. And the, the smallest person, there's only a handful in our lower school who are home. Mm-hmm. And um, our our largest percentage, although it's very close, is middle school, and then then followed by upper school. But those numbers are pretty 
pretty close. Um, and so I would, I would say that we, um, you know, what, how we've been thinking about the financial implications, because there have been many. I mean, we've, our, our budget line has been hit by about a half a million dollars or more in preparation um, for yeah. coming back to campus. And, and, and that will continue. You know, it's not, as, as Billy said, that, that number or the vision of this is, is still on the horizon. Um, and, but what, I, what I've really been, been impressed by school-wide and all, all, of, all of the schools that, that I've been communicating with is really what, what we've been teaching our kids with regard to creativity and innovation and thinking out of the box. You know, we had to put our, our, you know, we had to put ourselves in that position over the last six months as we were getting ready and thinking about um, creative utilization of space. You know, we're in an interesting position because we have a brand new lower school designed by Overland, which is fabulous. And you would think it was intrinsically designed for a pandemic because it really, it really offered the space, um, you know, the, the uh, access to the outdoors, outdoor classrooms, open collaboration space, free flow, you know, there's no narrow hallways, you know, there's a lot of things in the building that really, um, you know, when we got down to brass tacks and started thinking about how, what was school going to look like in the lower school, that was a significantly easier do and transformation than it was for our older buildings, um, where we really had to, had to get creative and, and, um, and use the space differently. And even all the outdoor spaces, you know, we have seven tents around campus, or outdoor classrooms and mask breaks, or um, you know, advisory times, lunch times, and, and whatever they can be used for. Um, but we too were fortunate in that enrollment wasn't hurt uh, over the from the spring to the summer. Um, we we opened fully enrolled. We did you know like Billy and I think like most of our schools had many families who were uh, hit hard financially, and we had to dig into some reserves for uh, helping those families uh, to get through. Um, one thing we're talking about now is what's going to be the long-term impact of those families, because we were able to, to help them for this year um, and in some part due to a, a wonderful donation from a family who was, who was looking out for those types of families having troubles. Um, but depending on how long this lasts or how long their difficulties last, you know, that's a whole, that's a pretty big budget implication for us over the next few years. Um, and the other, the other thought um, I had regarding kind of the implications were learning implications and in talking with teachers um, and what they're doing, you know, the word empathy has come up a lot and, and learning and leading, leading into empathy as you teach. Um, and as we lead schools is really important um, and something that we've taken to, you know, I think, and have had to take to a whole new level uh, this year. And again, being creative in the classroom um, and making those connections, trying to connect with, with students and students who are at home and at school and connecting in ways, you know, because there's no, you know, there, there's no or very few extracurricular activities, very few co-curricular activities, very few gathering opportunities. Um, you know, we're a very relationship oriented school. So we've had to rethink about how to strengthen and, and continue to, to build our relationships. And that's been you know, that, that's been a challenge and it's been uh, something that we you really have to work um, hard at to, to keep up. So those are the few things that, that came to mind with that question. And for uh, Fort Worth Country Day, we are um, 1,081 students from junior kindergarten through 12th grade. We're in um, 14 different buildings on a 104 acre campus. And I say that just to contextualize why it's easier for us than it is for 
lot of other folks. We, we put up tents um, outside that um, what wasn't a stretch for us to be able to do that, to find the space. Um, we've been able to um, make sure that uh, every class, all of our schedules were rearranged to be able to take what were already um, under 20 person classes at the most and make them into 10 and 12 person classes so that you could spread out. Um, but that's just the gift of space. And our biggest expenditure actually, while there's been a lot that we've spent on the facilities, um, air handlers and the like, um, plexiglass, if you didn't invest in plexiglass before you missed out because um, that's that they're, they're able to charge a lot these that days. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but we've we've made a lot of those investments and uh, out of a $24 million uh, annual operating budget have spent close to uh, $750,000 on those kinds of things. But our biggest expense has been on people. Um, and uh, we hired at each of our three divisions, we call them in an independent school, the lower, the middle, and the upper division, we hired nine substitutes to be permanently present uh, on campus at each of those divisions. So our biggest commitment was to having people around to support our people. Uh, as Ruth was speaking to it, it's true with every teacher, whatever school you're in right now, this is a really hard year to be a teacher and we can't do enough to support them. And we thought the most important thing we could do um, after giving them a tougher schedule, stretching their classes out, they still teach the same number of kids, but just over more periods now. Um, biggest thing we could do was give them true true support in the terms of uh, in the presence of other folks on campus. So that's been our our biggest uh, expense. We have uh, I think one of the questions was also how many of our kids are here and are home. The highest percentage of kids we had opting for the um, synchronous learning from home was eight uh, percent, and we're down to about four percent now. So we're we're basically. Uh, all here and eager to keep supporting those kids who aren't here right now and also able to pivot quickly to kids who need to quarantine. Um, we've had plenty of those uh, and we're able to quickly offer them the online offer uh, online version of the school because we don't want anybody to hesitate um, if they've got a health issue going on to be staying home. Yeah, for sure. It's really, it's really interesting to hear um, everybody go back to the people side of things, you know, all things considered space, um, money, we're still talking about the people and, and making sure that they are well cared for, whether they're students or teachers and trying to un unpack, like, what does that mean to be well cared for? What does that look like? Um, and so much of that care is tied up. I mean, so much of what teachers and educators do are tied up in everybody else's life that I, I feel like when, when we're not in school, everybody, the entire city, the entire state is affected because there's nowhere to put your own children. Um, and so it's really important and impressive that you guys have been back in person for so long and are, and, and it's also worth noting, like you're still grappling with the people wellness part um, that other schools who are, have much less students in person and are having to teach in that dual mode are grappling with the same thing. So I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from each other on that. 
Um, I'm wondering like in long-term thinking, what are the implications you have for how you're gonna design you next year or farther out? What happens to our learning programs? What shifts have you made that you think I'm gonna carry this shift forward no matter what, because this is a smarter way or better way of taking care of our people, or it's a better or smarter way of making sure that learning is happening regardless of our context. I won't, I'm not going to directly answer that one uh, first with just one little comment about Jen. One of the things that was really surprising to me was a conversation a few weeks into school with a parent about their child's favorite teacher um, and went on about how great this teacher was. And I asked at the end of that, did you realize that that teacher has actually not been to school yet? We have a few teachers who have their own medical circumstances where they're teaching from home to school. And this favorite teacher was able to be teaching from home. And I've watched the class a number of times um, and who have earned uh, status as a favored teacher while never actually being in the room with the kids. The kids were here at school with a kind of babysitter in the room and the teacher was at home. So I don't know if that's going to have a long-term implication, but it sure does suggest that you can do a really good job teaching distantly. And, um, you know, whether the kids are able to be together talking or not, the teacher can call on everybody. They can see everybody in the room. I don't want to go that way. Um, we, with the relationships happen much better in person, no sure. but this was an interesting, that's an interesting sort of reality check that I, uh, keep noting to folks. There's been one thing interesting to me, um, is, you know, in trying to think of silver linings, about all this and and how what what can we move forward and take forward with us and and keep with us and there's been a little bit of um joy in the stripping down of what happens at school you know right now we i mean it's it's just learning and teaching right it's learning and teaching we're doing everything we can to bring the joy keep the joy that's here and at first that was hard because it was very regimented we were you know very much teaching protocols and health and safety and how to get around campus in totally new ways and how to be in class in a t completely new way i mean we're in a completely altered state um but and yet you know there are no visitors on campus not even parents um, you know, sports, we started sports very late and it's, you know, pretty scaled back and, you know, one game there can, you know, there's some things that, you know, I, I miss desperately and we, we, we want to come back, but there's part of this where you think, you know, we, we are back into the business of teaching and learning without some of the extras that sometimes take our attention away, um, from maybe, you know, the heart or core of what we're doing. And so we're wondering and having conversations about about what are some things that maybe aren't necessary. Um, you know, we want to keep things that build and strengthen and keep our community tight and together. Um, but there, are, but sometimes that you you add on. It's like you add on to your plate, but you never take anything off. And so this might be a really good chance to go through and do an inventory of what we do and why we do it and what's the value and how does that how does that help us deliver our mission. Um, and so it could be a good opportunity to think about. Um, you know, recalibrating a little bit and taking a little bit of the pressure off of being everything to all people and, and offering, you know, everything to all people. So that's a conversation that we're starting to have here. Um, and so I think that'll be interesting to see how, what that looks like a, a few years down the road. Definitely. We just walked through an exercise with uh, one of the schools that I partner with on that exact thing. It's like, 
list every single thing that you do during a day and then let's categorize it as high effort, high impact or high effort, low impact, et cetera. And then we said, what can we take off the plate and let's leave it like this. Like, let's carry that, that idea forward. And I guess I'm, I might come from a different perspective. Um, I think one of the things that's really been brought home to us is one of the things that we took for granted in which as the adults, we didn't see much importance. And we realized in retrospect, actually are really important to our kids. And so one example I'll use, because we realized this last year when we were in full-on distance mode for everybody, was something as simple as um as passing periods. You know, we look at passing periods as mainly going from one class to another. What we realized was for our kids, that was a time for them to reconnect with each other, to get a little bit of a five-minute social boost, if you will, before they went on to the next class. And so I think what we're really grappling with is... um I think academically, we've made a pretty good transition. I'm not going to say it's the same, um, but we've made a pretty good transition. But I think what we're trying to figure out is how do we how do we maintain those traditions, those rituals that really feed our children's social emotional sides that are much more difficult to do online. You know, I'm thinking about this in terms of Halloween's tomorrow, and we're doing some of the same traditions that we typically do, but then some of them particularly in our high school, we have some kids there and some kids off. We're doing them via Zoom and they may be good, but they won't be what they will be like. And so I think one of the things that's really kind of reminded us of is um, Zoom, you know, this may be stating the obvious, but Zoom is not the same. And I think one of the things that may have reminded us of is the importance of the human and humane interaction um, face-to-face that people have that can create things that no matter how good your technology is, it just can't do it. It doesn't mean that it's not good, but it means that it's very different and it may not be as good. And so we're trying to figure out kind of how do we maintain these, these traditions, these rites of passage that we have for now in Zoom, but then how do we kind of eventually bring them back and how do we kind of marry the, the best of all worlds? You know, the other thing that I think we've realized and, and I think Ruth and Eric would agree um, if you kind of want to go in terms of difficulty for teaching, obviously in person, teaching is never easy, but teaching is the one with which we're the most comfortable yes. and it's the one we've been doing for a long, long time. And we know our teachers can do very, very well. And then for a while, we had to make the pivot to go into distance learning. And I think our teachers learned along with everybody else. And because we started in distance learning again this year, we'd learned a lot and our distance learning um, really got stronger. Concurrent learning is really, really hard. And, and I was actually talking with a student about this today. And part of what makes it hard is as teachers, as educators, we want to feel like we're able to reach every child. We know we can't, but we want to feel like we're doing the best we can to reach every child. And it's really difficult when you have some students who are in front of you and some students who are on a screen and I think one of the things that can be really anxiety inducing for many teachers is if they go home at the end of the day and they feel like they've served neither group well. Yeah. That's what I hear from our teachers. The thing that's most kind of um is most dispiriting is they feel like they've gone home and both groups have lost out on an experience they really want to provide for them. And so I don't know what that means in terms of what, you know, how we go forward. A friend of mine joked about the fact that he's really sad that, you could argue that snow days have completely disappeared. 
why do we grant in Texas, we don't have to add many, but in other parts of the country, why do you need to have a snow day anymore? You can just say, okay, we're going in distance learning mode. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think we've really kind of figured out what this is going to mean, mean when we come back and we can all be in person safely. Um, and a family says, you know, we're going to take a trip, but we still want our child to be able to attend school. Do we say that's okay? Um, and what do we do when we have a family who reaches out to us from Montana and says, hey, um, I have a cousin who goes to that school and I've heard it's really great. I'd really like to attend it also. And even though I don't live in San Antonio, um, I know that you all have a distance learning program. So we'd really like to attend it also. And so like we were talking about the other night, I think it's forcing a values discussion for us of how important is the face-to-face inhuman interaction on campuses versus mm-hmm. the academic experience that we can provide online. So this is Rick. Um, I'm curious, and this may be, you know, as an architect, uh, everything looks like a nail to me because I'm a hammer, but I had kind of an aha moment as Ruth was talking about, um, we used to do all these things and now we're realizing we don't actually have to. And I'm wondering how much the physical environment that was created that put kids in silos where you you did one thing in this place and then you went to this place and you did another thing and then you went to this place and another thing created the need to have to have those kinds of programs. And if you're seeing any difference in an environment like the new lower school, which is much more open and organic or amorphous, that a lot of those social needs are met just almost by virtue of the fact that the space allows it or the library is spread throughout the school rather than a place to go to, or you, you see where I'm going? Is there a connection between those? Yeah, you know what? And I'm going to build on that a little bit, Rick, because I was thinking when Billy was talking, he talked a little bit about that physical connection and the need we have. And I just listened to a podcast about burnout and the stress cycle and how you um, I think we don't give enough attention to the fact that when you are stressed out, you have physical manifestations of that and your body actually has to complete the cycle for you to find actual relief from stress. And one of the things that completes a stress cycle is physical interaction with someone. And um, it's like your body is, it's everything in your body is telling your body that you are now safe. So when you can have this casual conversation with a trusted friend or family member, or you can give somebody a high five, or you can have a hug, those are the things that tell your body, like, you're safe again. You've come home in a sense. And so I'm wondering, too, if the building space and the way that we lay rooms out and the ability to to just have natural collisions with people instead of just high traffic areas that take you from one point to the other, um, if that also is part of that stress cycle completion, that's going to be really important when we do come back in person. I, I, I think absolutely <laughs> on on all accounts. You know, right now we have, um, and, and I, I would follow up a little on what Billy was saying, you know, the, the, the chance for just socialization that comes naturally is, is missing, you know, at, at the lunch table, we have, you know, we have round tables um, and it's part of our founding because we don't want anyone at, ahead of a table, right? We're all equal around the table. And so everywhere around campus in the dining hall and the study commons, we have round tables and usually eight to 10 kids are around a table eating lunch together. Now it's four with partitions in between. You, 
you can barely hold a conversation, right? And so, and then another interesting thing, inspired by our new lower school, we wanted to spruce up a little bit of the other spaces on campus. And so we have a study commons area for older kids and Rick is, knows, knows it well. It's kind of an older looking, um, you know, it's a 80s, 80s, 1980s building, older looking, kind of dark, and it's study. But we, we ordered this great new furniture for it last year, right? We had kids help design it. We went through the process that Overland taught us. You would have been proud of me, Rick. So we, we had, about, had a conversation about what do we want to do in the space? How do we want to live in the space? And how can we do that, you know, through the furniture? Because we can't do anything about the you know, the space itself is going to be what it is until we, you know, have another campaign, probably. So we ordered, we designed and ordered this great furniture space and, and furniture. And we had to, we had to store all the furniture, you know, it was, de- it was delivered in, in August and, but we can't have any lounging furniture. Like there's no, we had to strip the campus bare of anything that where you would have a, a, a an incidental, you know, a conversation or a, a collision of, of socialization, which, which we're used to. Now we're walking around the building all the same direction, so we don't cross paths this way. Um, you know, it's such a different experience, and and I do worry about that part. For our, you know, I feel like our kids are have been so resilient. I've been completely impressed at every every turn about how they're taking this and how they're responding. Um, Yet it's still a, a constant thought on our part about how can we, how can we infuse some of that natural socialization that feels good to them and and is and and they need. Um, so I don't. I think I got off your topic a little bit, but I was really still thinking a little bit about what Billy had said earlier. Well, just to build on that, Jen, I'll jump in here. I'm, sure. I'm take, taking a look at the chat, and I see that uh, Eric posted something that. Uh, uh, contrary to Billy's uh, joke about there being no more snow days, uh, Eric and team have declared one. Uh, but I think it fits well with what you were saying, Ruth, which is the uh, the the uh, how to take the pressure out and the, and and really uh, understand that there's an emotional toll this is having. So, Eric, I'd, I'd be interested to have you expound a little bit on uh, the the reasoning behind the uh, the the COVID snow day. So um, I would say it's really for the faculty. Uh, it's really about the fact that we just we keep looking for ways to ease the pressure of um, they don't have breaks now. Everybody's got um, pretty much the full day with duties. The way we use those kind of super subs is they come in and take study halls. They do some lunch duty. They do some kind of duties things just so the faculty will have a little bit of time um, but we felt the need to create more of a block where people could recharge there's you just look at the faculty and think um, exhaustion is right around the corner and to Jen's I don't know what that podcast said about burnout but it's real Um, and we need to sustain folks for what we think is at least a year of a similar kind of altered school lifestyle Um, so about a month ago we started uh, introducing some early dismissals, just two o'clock, just to actually create some space for extra help for the kids, for time for the teachers to Zoom with each other that they don't get now. They don't have nearly as much of the um, grade level discussions that they're used to having because they're they're busy pretty much the whole day. So this was just meant to be a a place to breathe. Um, And uh, I've been here six years, and one of the things that's supposed to be particularly fun about being ahead of school is you get to declare snow days. I haven't gotten to declare one yet, so we went with snow day. 
Eric, we're doing the exact same thing and actually have next Friday off as well. So, and it's for this now, we're not calling it a snow day. We didn't want to give little kids hope like that, but um, <laughs> in Texas, but yes, we're doing the same thing. We had a half day uh, a week ago, Friday, we're taking this Friday off and we've planned another, another day in January. So it's, it's really the gift of time and just a, a chance to recharge your spirits and energy. I love that you guys. I, I, and it made me want to ask you Ruth to go back for a second and talk about, I think I heard you say that you guys have scheduled mask breaks. Yes. We, <laughs> yeah, we have, we, we do. We're, you know, the, the schedule is such for middle and upper school, especially where, as Eric mentioned, that were, I think most schools are experiencing this. So they have our, our schedule is they actually have fewer classes during the day, but they are longer. And so classes are anywhere from an hour to 90 minutes. And that's because we are linked with our middle school schedule because we share a few teachers. And so it's a little complicated way of saying, so they're in the classroom for quite a while and then have literally no passing time and and go to their next class. And so what we've done um, is teachers have, can build in uh, mask breaks where they go outside. We have tents around campus and they can go outside and depending on the age, they can just sit and hang out or they can, you know, socially distant once their mask is off. Uh, Younger kids throw a football around. So green space. So we do that. We also have hand washing and sanitizing breaks as well. So um, that also gives the teacher, a, you know, the teacher doesn't have to be in the classroom for the complete 90 minutes. He or she can strategically structure their breaks as they, as they'd like. Um, and, you know, and now that we're in the, in kind of the groove of that, everybody kind of has their plate, their, their space and where they like to go. And, um, and the kids, you know, they love it and just, and need that outdoor fresh air. Let's take the mask off for a few minutes, um, and still be safe and then, then head back in. We did a similar thing with the mass breaks, but I would tell you, Jen, one of the reality of the challenge for the faculty, there's no chance for them to go to the bathroom. I mean, we've had to use the subs to make sure that there's somebody in the hall at all times that a teacher can just step out and say, you know, rescue me. Like, like that's, that was the extreme of this schedule um, that we're, we're having to navigate is, is even a simple bathroom break for a teacher, which is, um, it's, it, it can sound amusing, but it's not. It's a really difficult challenge. Yeah, we have, we've enlisted a lot of staff who, you know, like myself, who are in their offices. And so we have, we actually have a live Google Doc every day. And if a teacher needs a break, they enter it on the Google Doc and it pops up and we'll go cover for a little bit. And we, we also cover lunches because uh, that's another time where, you know, they, they, have, they have no breaks. And so we're, give, we're covering their lunch so they can actually eat their lunch with adults if they want, want to a couple days a week, which is helpful. Yeah, I love the idea of a live Google Doc. And I think, Eric, I heard you call them super subs, right? <laughs> which is another great idea. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, guys. I think that, Joel, was there, were there more things you wanted to bring up from the chat? Yeah, I did. I, uh, so just to build on this, you all have shared a little bit about how you're troubleshooting the issue, the live issues of today, or thinking about giving staff relief, students some relief. You know, I'd love to 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 use the, that that same line of discussion and kind of give you all the looking glass. So uh, one of the questions that came up uh, from Michael that's here in the chat, and there are a few others that I'll get to, uh, but you know, take the looking glass and think about the the long-term impact uh, for students, for staff, and so you guys are troubleshooting what what exists today, 
Um, and we won't hold you to it, but if you picked up the looking glass and you thought a year down the road, two years down the road, um, what do you think the long-term impact of, of this, the situation we are in uh, and the experiences of our, our, our kids and of, of teachers will be? I think we're all going to have much better hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> sure. low-hanging fruit the kids really know how to wash their hands well um but i'm sorry no i'm that, that's, a big, that's a big weighty question i'm um yeah I, I need to i need to kind of give that some thought i think you know we are before i came to keystone the board had done a um a strategic plan and one of the main focuses was on um was on wellness um like a lot of schools we can be in a pretty intense place and I think if anything, what, what this has reinforced is that we need to look at social emotional wellness as well as academic performance. And so I think one of the things that's come out of it is, um, for example, we have put much more breaks into our schedule than we had before. Um, we don't have passing periods because the kids are all staying, the middle schools are all staying in the same classroom and the teachers are cycling through. But now in between every class where it used to be a five minute passing period now, we've taken time off of classes and now they have a 15 minute outdoor break. It gives a break for the teachers because the students go out, the PE staff helps them and um, watches over them. And we've done things like put large connect fours and ping pong tables and things like that in the quad. And it's helped the kids just be outside for a little bit and kind of refresh them before they go back to the classroom. But I think one of the things that I hope we don't lose is really focusing, continuing to focus on as much the social emotional side as we are the academic, because I think we like to think that we did, but I think this has kind of forced that issue even more. And I would I would add on uh, to Michael's question that there's a, and to Ruth's comment as well, that we don't know yet, obviously. And one of the things I think we're all losing sleep over, it doesn't mean just heads of school, but everybody is losing some sleep over. Will anybody get seriously ill? Uh, in our communities? Will anybody die in our communities? If that happens, it's a totally different impact, I think, uh, on folks. If it's the bus driver that the kids have had for every year and that person gets sick, or if it's their kindergarten teacher that everybody had, I mean, that, that will um, be a dramatically different experience for all of us. And we all live with some fear of that. On this more simple and hopefully less dramatic version of it, I think, Michael, that one of the things we all worry about is the kid who has not been able to learn to socialize. It's so much of our experience as um, schools is to socialize kids. Um, the chance in lower school for kids to run into each other on the playground and um, get into a little tussle about it and argue about, you know, what should we do here? That peacemaking experience uh, is one that's really valuable. And right now we're telling everybody to stay away from each other. So many of those kind of typical social battles, if you will, aren't occurring. Kids are behind masks and we can't read their expressions as well. They can't read each other's expressions as well. So some of the really basic social and emotional learning is really compromised. And uh, I don't think we know yet how many kids will show the effects of that. But I think there will be some who, um, as, the longer this goes on, the more the impact is on them. Uh, and it'll be up to us as schools to dive in and help catch some kids up. It's like not having learned to read by third grade as a dramatic telltale for kids as they go through the rest of their lives. Not having learned to read faces is a big telltale deal, and we're not getting to do that right now. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the 
primary value propositions for independent schools is our, is the community, is our community and our the relationships. Um, you know, and that that has been challenged uh, during this time, and yet it also has ri we've risen to the challenge. And in many ways, that's really what has kept a lot of our schools together and enrollment healthy, uh, because I think people feel that relationship and how important that relationship is. Um, and I and on the reverse side, I also see some kids and some families who you know perhaps are pretty comfortable with the online version and you know kids you know, like eric was saying who who aren't as social and you know gosh it's a little easier to be behind a computer screen as opposed to actually having to you know look someone in the eye and, and talk to them face to face and you know i have i have two boys one who graduated is a 2020 you know 2020 graduate um from esd and another one who's in 10th grade um, and it's been really interesting kind of watching the differences and, and seeing how they both reacted and, and, uh, and, and responded to this. And, it's, and they're just two examples of, of many. Um, and, and it's very different for each of them. And so I, I, do, um, I do worry and think about long-term impacts and effects on our kiddos and, and what that looks like and how can we continue to learn and grow to support them. Um, especially the little ones. I, I'm one of those people that helps with lunch in lower school a couple days a week and because I love it. And so I have a, a first grade class that I serve lunch to. And, and you know, they are, they automatically put those masks on. They automatically sit six feet apart. I mean, it is amazing what they do. And so it's instinctively now. And what does that look like ideally a year or two years from now when you know, we, we can be back to normal. How will they be different than, than children who are two years younger than them? There's just a lot of, lot of unknowns. We don't know what we don't know, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but it's also, it's also kind of hopeful, right? Because you're like, man, we get to do the thing we love to do, which is bring new ideas to the table and try stuff out and learn along with everybody else as we're learning. And it means that things that we know weren't working in the past, we can just completely dismantle now because it's like, we don't even have to bother with that. And we don't have to argue with anyone over it. We're just going to do this because this is the right thing to do. Um, and, and hopefully some of that stuff will stick. Jen, just to build on that, you know, I, I, it strikes me, Billy, Eric, and Ruth, that you all are, are sort of going through a fresh new professional education. Yeah, uh, you know, sure. you, you've been put in an environment where like there's lots of things in your toolkit that you brought through your experience and your own professional training um, that that have worked for years. But then you're like, wow, I actually need some new tools. And so you've had to get good with uh, with some new things in the toolkit. And so I just wonder now if, uh, you know, this this podcast or this 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 meeting has been hosted by Miseducation and Overland and Overland is is a group of architects um, and, that think often about design and the physical environment, and as Rick stated at the top. I wonder if, if we gave you, with your new eyes, uh, having walked through the, this fall semester, if we gave you sort of a, a, a large sheet of paper and said, design the school now that you think will be best for the future, what would be some of the features in that school? Ruth, you mentioned a couple of things uh, earlier in our meeting um, today, but I wonder sort of what would be to, to design facets. You don't have to tell us the color of, of the stairs unless you want to, 
you can be as granular or as macro as you'd like. But I just kind of wonder, like, as you walk through your schools now, if you're like, gosh, it'd be really great if we had blank. What fills in the blank for you? You know, I've, I've got to brag on our lower school that was designed by Overland. And a lot of, a lot of the uh, design elements uh, in that building have really helped us uh, through this. And we've been able to leverage that. And I think some of the key ones are the access to outdoors. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, vertical building, three stories. And on the second and third floors, each grade level has an outdoor classroom. And, you know, that, that has been that has really been really been helpful uh, during this time and the and as Rick was saying the open collaborative areas and spaces that can be transformed into almost anything depending on on the need um, and a lot of it for us has also been the furniture um, as part of the space and the flexibility of the furniture and being able to um, transform spaces depending on the need. Um, uh, and what we want to do. And so, you know, I think those are the, those are the main things. I, I think the, the, the flexibility uh, of space, you just can't um, overstate how, how important that has been for us because we've had, we've been really able to, to transform some spaces and make classrooms where there weren't classrooms and to create spaces that we didn't even realize we, we had almost. And, and I would, I would echo what Ruth said in terms of kind of Heavy emphasis, and this is one of the areas where we're blessed in Texas. Heavy, heavy emphasis on outdoor space and the usage of outdoor space and spaces that are almost indoor outdoor space. Um, and like Ruth said, also kind of emphasis on flexibility and not having spaces that are specifically devoted to any certain one thing as much as possible. And then also, obviously, heavy duty investment in technology, so the classes can provide for both in person. Um, and for distance, because I think we know, I mean, this is this is not going to be the pandemic, last pandemic in our lifetime, and it's not going to be the last one in the lifetime of our children. Um, and so I think we need to be planning, we need to be planning structures going forward that would allow us the maximum flexibility, both when we're all together on campus, but also when we have to do this kind of mode again. I'm just an echo, flexibility. I, I don't think we know exactly what the next pandemic is going to be like and whether it will need the fresh air issues, but I'm guessing flexibility and indoor outdoor will remain big. I'm going to uh, thank you all for sharing those ideas. I'm going to now uh, uh, click off some of the comments that have been placed in the chat. Um, we've got one from Adam and then one from Rick. It's really uh, around the intersection of technology and culture. Um, one, I think on the positive side, what have you been learning about uh, the culture, the academic culture you can create in a virtual environment? Like what are some specific things that you've done to create that academic, uh, the structure, the learning environment, even though it might be in a virtual space? So learnings that you have there. And then Rick's question is kind of on the flip side, uh, which is have there been incidences of or concerns around cyberbullying given a, uh, a, a more virtual approach to learning. So uh, I'll let you know, somebody take that, the first part in terms of culture around uh, uh, the technology, and then maybe somebody could grab the uh, second part of the question around cyberbullying. Mine is a very selfish um, version of this answer for a principal of a school that one of the things I've learned about the virtual world for that 8% now, about 4% of our kids who are out 
um, I have virtual lunches with them. I really miss getting to see and know the kids and those kids who are distant are only seeing their teachers in the classroom. Uh, and so selfishly, I have loved having um, learning that if we're going to have kids who are virtual, you got to find ways to just have casual conversations when they're not in class. And selfishly for me, that has been a um, big bonus. And I would, we, we actually haven't had, knocking on wood, uh, an increase in the cyberbullying kinds of things. Perhaps we're not aware. Um, perhaps normally we would have seen it more live action and seen the impact of it with kids walking around and, you know, things going on during a passing period. But so far, um, we're not seeing that sort of impact. Same thing. Um, I'll stick with that, what, what Eric um, mentioned. And it was interesting, while we were all at home in the spring, um, I had a number of parents, especially parents of girls, comment that, you know, for a while, their girls were pretty much at peace because there weren't, everyone was at home. There were no social gatherings. There were no pictures being posted of some girls having fun and other girls who weren't invited. And, and there was a time there where everybody was just kind of, you know, at, at peace. Um, and so that thought, I thought that was a really interesting um, outcome of that or a part of that, that time. And then I, I would say, with, again, with just like Eric, we haven't noticed an in uptick at all. Um, in fact, it's probably been fewer instances um, in middle school, and that middle school is typically the height of that, seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So fortunately, that has not been uh, a cause effect at all. I would concur that so far, and I'm almost afraid to say this because I'm afraid of jinxing us, but we've not seen anything in terms of increases of cyber aggression of any side. Um, and I will share with you something that was really lovely, and I blogged about this this week. Um, we have an annual ritual called Stone Soul. We have it four times a year, and it's kind of like our version of an open mic night. And typically, we'll have it in the cafeteria. And what's really wonderful is when you have some students who will perform for the first time, they'll kind of go out on a limb, um, and they'll perform, and there'll be kind of the round of applause. And we had our first one of this year last Wednesday night. And what was really beautiful was it's open for ninth graders and through 12th graders. And I think for some of our ninth graders, it actually may have been, they may have felt safer to perform in this venue because it wasn't public. But then what was really also endearing was because there's the chat, the overwhelming number of positive affirmations the students got in the chat. And it's one thing when everybody's kind of applauding for you as you're, it's another thing when you're there and you can see it and somebody's saying, hey, Issa, you are fantastic. Or, oh my gosh, I've, I've never seen anybody do that on a guitar before. So in that way, um, it really kind of affirmed that part of our culture and maybe even took it to a whole different level because students were no longer anonymously applauding, applauding. students by name were putting comments in the chat about other kids. And so I think that's one of the things, you know, I don't think we want to do this necessarily virtually forever, but it was one of the things that I think we want to try to figure out how to maintain because it was really affirming for those kids who kind of put themselves out there and performed. Thank you. That's a great comment, Billy. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's sort of the silver lining comment that we're looking for. Just a couple other chats, chat items here. Nicholas, uh, mentioned making uh, how to structure classrooms and prevent them from uh, fe not feeling like a computer lab, still being a learning environment, a positive learning environment for kids. And he also, during our conversation about the, the physical and school design, talked about being able to bring 
the outdoors in without exhausting the operating budget, utilities, things like that. Um, so uh, those are two other comments that popped up. And um, Jen, I think that we, we've gone through um, all of our essential questions. Um, and I'd love to just give, uh, give our panelists a kind of a final word uh, as we close out our session. So uh, while uh, panelists are giving their, their final word, sort of the, their final uh, uh, way of, 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 of sharing their experience, sharing what they believe is best and next for uh, the independent school market, uh, families, students, and teachers, um, feel free to chat if you have any last questions. Definitely. And I would encourage you to think about, like, what is the one thing that if you, you would want everybody to know about the work you're doing? I would say one of the things, I've only been an educator since I graduated from college, so I don't know the rest of the professional world and what it's like, but I am as challenging as this year is and as eager as I am to have a post-COVID Fort Worth Country Day. Um, one of the things I just, I love about being an educator is the collaborative spirit. Um, I wish that upon the rest of the world during this time, that uh, this is a group of people, public school, private school, whatever world you're in, people are all sharing ideas. Uh, and I'm particularly grateful for the chance to have lots of um, friends around the country with whom I'm uh, connecting, but also lots of new folks uh, that are sharing ideas. And Billy and I were just on a call this afternoon um, our Association of Independent Schools um, of the Southwest is a group of 90 some odd schools and the heads of those um, get together and share all the time. I learn a lot from local people in the public schools of uh, Tarrant County, um, but I, I hope we don't ever lose that, the wonderful collaborative sense. Yeah, I, I think perhaps I mean, there are so many things I'm taking away from, from this experience, but I think perhaps the most important um, to me is is this you know the value of being a lifelong learner and we are doing nothing but learning <laughs> right now and learning new things every day if not every hour as we go through this and our teachers you know we've had they've had to learn how to teach again because it's such a new new experience and new demands placed on them and so i think all of us um you know we're practicing what we preach to our kids um you know growth mindset and learning and willingness to grow and and that's what i love about about being a part of a school uh, like esd um and that's why i've been here so long and um the collaborative nature things like this are you know energy producing and and very valuable so thank you and i would i would echo what said before um i think the only thing worse than going through this is going through this and not learning and growing from it and and i believe that um Obviously, there are great challenges here, but there are really great opportunities. And I do think that there are some things that are really exciting and dynamic that are coming out of it. Um, and to what Ruth just said, I think maybe one of the most important things is we're really modeling for our students that you're constantly learning, constantly trying something, then reassessing it, and then trying to improve it. And our kids see that in real time. You know, when we change our drop-off procedures or when we say, well, we tried this and we're going to try that. I think that's a really important lesson that we're sending to our children, not only by word, but also by deed. And so I think that's setting themselves up very well for, for the world that they're going to be going into. Um, and I do think that, I, I don't think it's merely Pollyannish to say there are some good things that are coming out of this. You know, like Eric said, um, 
I've been in this for a while. I've never seen heads of school communicate like they are communicating with each other now. There is a feeling of collegiality um, and shared vulnerability that I don't think I've ever seen. A lot of times when there are lots of independent schools in one town, the perceived nature of competition can prevent people from really helping each other out. And you're not seeing that at all anymore. And so I think that's something that once again is modeling really well for our students but I think we're kind of all there being mutually supporting and we're all growing and learning from it. And then there are just some things that, um, that there are opportunities that our kids can't have anymore. I mean, our kids can have now, they couldn't have before, you know, conversations like this. Um, the fact that about 25 of our students are attending a lecture next week with Ibram X. Kendi um, on his book, how to be an anti-racist. Now we couldn't afford to bring Ibram Kendi to school and we couldn't afford to send our children to, uh, to Rutgers where he's a professor. But the fact is they're going to join with children all over the United States and learn from somebody who's written this really, really important book. So I think we kind of have to look for what are the opportunities that were there before. You know, we, Abraham X. Kennedy could have done this presentation without a pandemic. And so I think it's forcing us to kind of look for some new opportunities that could have been there before, but weren't, but are there now. So how do we hang on to those going forward and not just fall into the things we were doing before we face the situation? And part of the hard part is trying to identify what are those things that we want to keep while we're in the middle of constantly innovating and constantly changing. So two points as we draw to a close. Uh, uh, Billy, you got a comment from Rick uh, suggesting a program that, that, that he's used called Mentee that allows participants to use their phone to type in comments, uh, Rick saying that it works well. And then one final question for you, Billy, that came through from Michael, uh, are you all considering expanding your curriculum to gain more students nationally? So you talk, you use the example of, of having a student, you know, from Montana that's like, huh, maybe I want to go to Keystone, but stay in Montana. Is that something that you're considering as a model uh, for moving forward or for next year? You know, I, I, you know, Josh, I don't know, Joel, I'm sorry. I don't know if we're looking at changing the curriculum. Um, but we have a situation right now where a family has decided they're going to move to Seattle in the next month. Okay, because of job loss here and they haven't been able to get anything here. So they're moving to Seattle, but they have a child who's in sixth grade and he wants to stay at Keystone. So he's going to be attending Keystone the rest of the year from Seattle. And I think it's one of the things that we're going to look at is not necessarily altering the curriculum, um, but I will tell you that I think when we even discuss this, it really kind of freaks out other administrators and freaks out teachers like, man, it's hard enough with the students we have here in San Antonio. And all of a sudden we're talking about children attending from Columbus, Ohio. But I think on the other hand, we at least have to have that conversation. If we end up in the same place, that's fine. But at least have the conversation to say, what are the opportunities that this current situation offers us that we might not have had before? That's a big thought. That's a great thought to end on. And um, uh, as uh, as fellow Texans, I'm seeing out your your windows that it's it, it's the, the darkness is drawing in. It's just about nighttime, and uh, we really appreciate everybody's time today. Um, Eric, Billy, Ruth, um, thank you so much for engaging in the discussion. On behalf of Overland, um, it, we are just delighted to be a part of it and um, support you all as you make a lot of decisions every day. Uh, yeah. But as we've, we've heard today, those decisions clearly in support of uh, what's best for kids, what's best for learning, and what's best for the teachers in, in, in your buildings and their families. So thank you.
you are really, truly on the front lines, and we want to learn as much as we can from you. Um, and today, it's just a great example of, of, of the wealth of knowledge that you're bringing to the table. Jen, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for partnering with us, and uh, thanks for this education and uh, all the, the really inspiring conversations that you've been able to lead. Uh, Miseducation, what we can listen to it on uh, uh, on your Apple podcast. It's on Spotify. It's wherever you get your podcast. Everything it's going to be available. And we will clean up this uh, uh, this meeting, uh, editing out some of my ums and uhs, and uh, <laughs> then post post a final version uh, so you can listen to it on your jog, your drive, um, or uh, wherever you are. It'll be on the uh, Overland website as well. Thank you. And I want to so apologize. Much. Jen, I want to apologize to 18,000 of your listeners that I failed to mention <laughs> since I understand you're up to 28,000, not 10,000. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Thanks. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. Thanks for the work you do every day. I appreciate you. I'm happy to know you. I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank Good you. night, everybody. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.